1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book. I'm Elizabeth Ferry, and I'm here with my co host, John Potts. Hi, John.
2: Hello.
0: And with our guest, Daniel Salelis, who's an anthropologist and associate professor in the Department of Management, Politics, and Philosophy in the Copenhagen Business School. He's the author of Songs of Profit, Songs of Loss, Private Equity, Wealth, and Inequality, which was published in 2019 by the University of Nebraska Press. Hello, Dan.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me. We're,
0: we're delighted you're here. Uh, so we're going to talk with Dan about his uh, his work on private equity, and uh, generally about um, you know related issues of fi- financialization and uh, inequality, and whatever happened to the Occupy movement and sundry other things. So
2: maybe we'll even get to the monastery at some point.
0: <laughs> oh yes, and get to the monastery. It too.
2: all comes back.
0: Yes um actually I'll say Dan that one of the things I really like about your work is is your writing style and your sort of way of um weaving the description of your methods into a narrative form so the,
1: the, oh thanks for that yeah
0: yeah um so yeah why don't you tell us about the book and if you want to start a little bit about the monastery that would be actually a good uh,
1: <laughs> yeah um it's fun. So the monastery actually is a great place to start. I wanted to go to a group of people who were trying to uh, live according to what God told them to do, because I thought it was an interesting question, because you can't really ask God directly. I, I don't know. So I thought, you know, this, this, uh, um, that would be a, a good thing to study, um, the, the way a community makes sense of the, the will of the divine. But what ended up happening was this was actually a couple of years after the financial crisis in two thousand seven two thousand eight and these monks, um, well, they I mean they weren't like entrepreneurs they weren't like real active monks they were hermits um, and so a lot of their 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 income came from donations and an endowment and it just got absolutely hammered uh, in the financial crisis and so you know something like fifty percent of their income was coming through investments. Um, and so they were in a bit of a crisis. They'd actually just built a like an infirmary to take care of old sick monks on the monastery. So there was a real estate element of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, uh, they, they wanted to get more donations. And like to do this, they decided they needed to be like a better charitable destination. And so they had a bunch of like... Um, some sort of organizational and accounting consultants come in and try to like scrutinize and rationalize this order of monks that had been around for like a thousand years. Um, and, and towards the end of it, they were asking me to sort of explain what I was noticing to the consultant guys. And um, I, I sort of had this, this moment where it was like, oh, well, the God stuff is interesting. It's, it's good to write about. I'd like to write about it at some point. But the, the real story here is these accountants coming in and like trying to rationalize this order of hermit monks, and mm-hmm. you know, put in an advisory board, and and try and reorganize their finances. And it was one of these moments where it's like, oh goodness, uh, you can't even escape it here. So maybe this is what I should be paying attention to. And so when I, when I got back to New York, um, Occupy Wall Street was happening. It, I, The years get a little blurry at this point, but it was happening at some point while I was in graduate school. and so yeah, I just decided that I should probably study the finance people that were pushing these monks around. And so that so, that made me reorient
2: to study up. So I I come from a nineteenth century perspective. And the so the yeah. first flowering of liberalism, not neoliberalism. So we're yeah, very yeah. familiar with a narrative of kind of everything that is solid melts into air, like everything gets financialized. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And ter- so so I guess my question for you is because I was thinking about how um resonant that anecdote of the monastery is at the beginning of your book. Is your understanding of this, something kind of like liberalism financialized almost everything, but then there were a few leftover places it didn't get around to. And now we're seeing them reaching even, even the monasteries. Is it that, or is it something, or is it something different about what's distinctive about this, like private equity moment or the moment of like a kind of new form of financialization that you are perceiving, like even in the monastery, you can see this new kind of valuing happening.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't actually have a good answer to that because I know that there's a, there's an extremely long history of monasteries and how they finance themselves and how they fit into their communities. My take on this particular house though, was it was, this particular house was founded in the fifties and kind of benefited a lot from the counterculture wave in the fifties and sixties. And, This was sort of like a little kind of Catholic version of this, where people were going in back to the land, that kind of thing. It happened in the West. Um, And like a lot of the biographies of the monks that I got sort of pointed in that direction. Like this was kind of a back to the land, back to basics, uh, monasticism as an alternative way of living. Um, And the way like these generations like rhythmically move through monasteries, that was still the generation that was by and large running the place when i got there i mean there were some younger guys that had come in but it had very much been established in the sort of 60s and 70s moment and i think i don't think you'd be unwarranted in sort of expanding it to the last to the rest of society where it's like financialization wasn't that big uh, a governing factor in a lot of societal institutions um it was sort of that post-war moment where it's it's more corporatism um kind of large corporate forms um some version of the post-war welfare state as Got opposed it. to atomizing everything and th- that was my read on the monastery Got it. Got it. but it, it's yeah. it's yeah. kind of a naive one because i don't have that much comparative material for you
0: that's interesting though because when you were asking that question john i was thinking about um you know liberalism and neoliberalism and this kind of tension between you know it comes out very clearly in your book and is clearly at the heart of the monastery question, too, between sort of um, business as produ- producing things, and then, you know, the role of finance as sort of extracting value. So sort of a productive and an extractive form of capitalism, you could call it. Um, and uh, to me, you can also see going from, and I'm sure, you know, certainly before too, but going from the 19th century through the 20th century, kind of an oscillation of you know, I mean, even when you think of the sort of debates over the greenbackers and the bullionists, right? Like those mm-hmm. are the debates between farmers and and Wall Street financiers and so on, right? And then there's these kind of um, high points of corporatism, corporatism, where there's a kind of you know uh, much more industrial manufacturing kind of base. So it's, I guess, I'm trying out on both of you the idea of maybe this is a story of a kind of oscillation or an ebb and flow although perhaps within that each time there's a an ebb of financialization it's like the wave goes a bit higher on the beach usually.
1: yeah yeah it kind of outdoes itself or it has to accumulate more to make up for wh- whatever wedge it's it's putting itself into
2: yeah i i mean i really i i i I totally take your point, Elizabeth, but just using the word extractive there, I guess I would, my 19th century return to this, but we don't have to dwell there, is that the extractive as opposed to the productive, to me also seems like one of those questions like within the basically farming enters into the industrial economy. It becomes part of the metaphor of like renewing and flourishing, like even interest on money is seen like crop renewal, you know, like Willa Cather right. is full of images where money and wheat seem like basically the same thing. But the extractive is actually a slightly different metaphor, isn't it? Because the extractive goes to this notion that what we're doing is like sort of cracking the earth open to get what we can. I mean, that's a yeah. that's a I kind of colonial saying- or imperial, that's like a that's like a resource extraction.
0: Mother. Yeah, I was being a little sloppy there. What I meant was ex- <laughs> in the sense of like extracting value from the interstices of the financial system.
2: I see. Yeah, yeah. So
0: the rents on currency exchange or the, uh, you know, gotcha. the fees yep. that are coming from these leverage buyouts that, that we read about in the Barbarians of the Gate. And-
1: yeah, I, I mean, I think that the Barbarians of the Gate, though, is an interesting case in this, right? Because, I mean, the, the irony of that book which is about, you know, the biggest leverage buyout that ever happened, maybe yeah. until a year or two ago. Yeah, and
0: um, do, uh, Give our listeners a one sentence reminding of the buyout.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was RJR Reynolds. So it was the company that makes Oreos. And at the time, it was merged with a company that made cigarettes. And so it was this massive, massive conglomerate. Yeah. Um And its stock was, according to some theories of corporate valuation, severely undervalued. And so um, H. Ross Johnson, the CEO at the time, tried to orchestrate a management-led buyout. Um, But then he got outfoxed by some of the first uh, private equity investors and they bid up and they bid up and they bid up. And this book is about the conflict between these two ways of seeing the company but like the irony of it is is okay the barbarians at the gate so it's like we're civilized on the inside here but the barbarians are out there and it's like okay the the private equity guys are supposed to be the barbarians because they're going to come in and smash up this corporation they're going to move people around they're going to sell everything but like you know the, the corporate management that was running this conglomerate was exceedingly decadent i mean And that's one of the the, the crazy things about the book it's like it's described in gratuitous detail that you know there's a fleet of like a dozen airplanes corporate jets that he's flying around and flying. uh,
0: golf tournaments and yeah like like 20 you're like a member of like 20 different country clubs and stuff so Yeah, yeah yeah yeah. But wait,
2: I don't get it. That still works because then the, if you're the decadent Romans, then I mean, decadents aren't barbarians, they're decadents. It's different. No, I sure. mean, <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're,
0: you're hanging out in the vomitorium, but you're not. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. Yeah, true. Um, now, link this your project, because one of the things I think it's great about your book is that you, you really kind of capture some of the tensions within private equity that are sort of, you know. There's this aspect of it that is saying, well, we're not venture capitalists and we're really looking for, you know, yeah, yeah. to improve management and to improve companies. And then there's another dimension which is much more um, you know, neg- perceived as negative. But you for yeah, right? sure. So yeah. So just tell us, yeah, sketch for us the, the study that you did.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I wanted to answer a very basic question. Uh, why and how do private equity investors buy, manage, and sell the companies that they do? Um, And so what I did for two years is I just chased private equity investors around mostly the East Coast of the United States. So I interviewed them, I went to their offices, I went to their conferences, and I just wanted to understand uh, what they did and how they understood what they did. Um, And one of the things that that was key to understanding what they did was exactly what you're describing, Elizabeth. It's this, this idea that they are responsible stewards of capital they uh, they deal with mature important companies they they take them under ownership for you know 3 to 10 years and then they sell them at a profit and in their heads if something is worth more when you sell it on the end of it than when you bought it you've created value you've improved it you've done something good to society and you know, key to this too is sort of their reference group. So like they compare themselves to other financiers. So as compared to, you know, the swindling middlemen that work in an investment bank, they are noble and honorable. And compared to the venture capitalists that want to smash our society and chase the next big thing and don't care about the returns on their investors, they are responsible and you should trust them with your money. And as compared to greedy, self-interested managers like, you know, H. Ross Johnson from RJR Nabisco, they uh, will manage your capital such that uh, investors and shareholders get their money back. And so like they see all of these people as their reference group and they're virtuous by comparison.
0: Right, right. Let me me bring us back a little bit to the idea of the self-conception and the kind of, cultural affective texture of it because one of the things that um, was really cool about your book and this is a little bit of insider baseball but um you know dan is situating himself within a broader field of anthropology of finance and one of his interventions has been to kind of say well hold on not all finance is the same there's a very well-known book uh called liquidated by karen ho which is i think is an excellent book but is sometimes taken as describing an entire describing Wall Street and, and, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Dan's work has been a sort of differentiation about sort of what's going on with the investment bankers that are in Ho's study and the private equity. One way to think about this is Karen Ho uh, has this idea of smartness. So like being a, you know, and smartness is like a very clear meritocratic thing Right. It's like it's so, you know, it's experienced as this kind of naturally occurring, you know, Hmm. inherent quality of a person, but it so happens that it's only people who go to Harvard, Princeton, and Stanford, and maybe who have it. Right. So there's like, It's what, it's
2: what gets you into a Michael Lewis book, right? Is
0: that (laughs) Um,
2: That or saying that all those other guys are dumb, like the the two roles for the Michael Lewis book.
0: Because, you know, so Dan has this very, in your book, you have this very good, you know, very specific kind of comparison of like, where do people come from? Like what institutions do they come from? And within private equity, the, it's a little looser. It's not as clear, right? You can actually go to the University of Oklahoma and become like a high you know, yeah. rich. And what what I noticed was and, and I wanted to ask you, is it's more like scrappiness. It's not so much smartness, it's more like scrappiness. So can you talk to us about what is scrappiness for these private equity people? And does it have any is it does it buy into a meritocracy or is it anti-meritocratic? And I partly say this because you talked about Seamus Kahn's book, Bridges, yeah. which we've now talked about several times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is it a form of which we've, we've discussed?
1: <laughs> yeah, in? I read that essay. I enjoyed that. Um, yeah. One of the differences is in socialization and, and is in background. And, you know, one way to think about socialization are the institutions that you pass through, but you can still end up a private equity investor. And like, you know, in the account that you get out of liquidated, it's like, the elite universities are very, very formative of expectations and personal identity and a pipeline. My reflection on this is that like, I think that's true for a subset of financial firms. And I think it's more true at the beginning of your career than at the end of your career. But finance is so, so, so much bigger than the aggregate, you know, undergraduate, graduating classes of the ivy league universities like you couldn't staff finance even if you took all the people from who graduated from princeton in one year and like routed them to wall street it's just it's so much bigger mm-hmm. and something different is going on with fi- with private equity i mean mm-hmm. there is this element of we look at you coming from an investment bank well, to get into a private equity firm there's a very small number of places that you can have worked prior right? You can work in, a, in an investment bank. Um, you can have worked as a management consultant, but you can also have worked as an accountant and you can also have worked as a lawyer. And in some specialized private equity firms, you can have worked as a hard scientist or a doctor or a bench scientist. Right.
0: If it's like a health. Theater, yeah. yeah.
1: And so accounting, I think, is actually an interesting route because um, as far as I know, like you can't get a degree in accounting from Princeton, I don't think. I got it. Yeah, yeah I, got I don't it. think you can. Yeah. yeah, I don't think you can do that from Harvard. So like, but that is a route into private equity, um, being a sort of an accountant. It's not a, it's not a majority route, but like I saw people with those backgrounds, and so the person who has a degree in accounting, they might have gone to like Penn State or something like that, which oh. is not a cauldron of like elite social formation. Mm -hmm. in the larger american scene where maybe a third of people go to even an undergraduate yeah it's more elite than the average population but it's not like this this stratospheric thing and yet those people still work with the people that have gone through the crucible of like goldman Sachs and princeton and that kind of stuff so there's a lot of open questions i have about like how they actually negotiate whatever sort of work culture they have and like The degree to which merit, elitist meritocracy is really what's going on, and I think you're pointing to scrappiness is you're identifying something that's more important. It's like this workhorseness or this 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 capacity to do this financial labor, and there you know it wasn't a common thing, but I would come into yeah. contact with people who were like, oh, I don't want to hire someone from like a prep school background, right? Yeah. I wouldn't want to hire. The boss's kid who was privileged um and so
0: well, i mean you sort of said it just now because like you know um when we were talking about smartness you said well or or you're you know you get in because you think those people are stupid right yeah so it's yeah, well, kind of think- like oppositional you know street smarty kind of quality yeah I- but it is a little different
1: I mean at this point i can't tell if this is my own prejudice or me remembering correctly the ethnographic evidence but like i don't think the private equity guys think what they're doing is like rocket science i mean there are sophisticated financial things that go into leverage buyout deals like you can make them extremely complicated the way you structure stock the way you structure the debt but like it's (laughs) i don't I, I don't know, maybe they do think it's complicated. I, I, it could be a thing to revisit, but it's
2: not like, I don't know. what are the analogies they use to describe what they're doing? Like do they talk about it like putting on a musical? <laughs> do they talk about it like a football game? Do they talk about, I mean, I feel like there are things that you know, that sort of give you an insight into what operations people think they're really good at. Or you know what I mean, they're—they say they're
1: doing deals, um, yeah. and they're not—they're not much given to figurative talk. You know, yeah. I picked up uh, some metaphorical references here and there. I mean, one that I thought was really funny was I was interviewing a guy who used to be um, a very fancy consultant, and he was probably in his early thirties, uh, working in a private equity firm. And It was a small private equity firm, and had an industry niche focus. Um, and I asked him, I said, like, Hey, you know, who do you like to hire? Right. Just very basic. And he's like, Oh, we like to hire athletes. And I was like, Oh, cool. So like you hire like uh, college basketball players and football players and stuff like that. And then his face just froze and he was like a He He's like, Oh God, no. Like he couldn't imagine hiring that type of athlete. What he meant was the metaphorical brain athletes. And like, that's who was coming uh, in. And I thought it was it so funny because it was like,
2: tennis. yeah,
1: yeah. 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 But like you would, yeah. you would pick this metaphor for like peak performance that is the furthest away from what you're actually doing to describe. Like the one thing you can't do with all of your money is play basketball. Yeah, <laughs>
0: that's really interesting. But I did. I mean, like in the barbarians at the gate. To me, it seems like fighting. I mean, it's like we got we. It's like war and fighting. Yeah, we got yeah. Wasted. They're they're kicking our ass. They're you know yeah. they're murdering us. Um, and also there's a whole like betrayal kind of like you were getting used so those seem to be implicitly metaphors about
1: i I think that like that 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 realm of metaphor is still alive but the thing about barbarians at the gate is it's kind of at the beginning of private equity so Mm -hmm. they're smashing lots of norms and it's Mm -hmm. been routinized to a degree that people kind of know what to expect now when private equity shows up um, wow. And it was hostile. Like it went to an auction and wow. the private equity guys don't want that because when things go to auction,
2: prices go up. So, wow. you know, the avatars of capitalism don't want that form of competition. So this is a hard question to, to, to get at exactly. But at where do people think, the people who are, you are studying, do they think of what they are doing as like a noble vocation, or profession, like my ethical life is in doing this or do they think of it as like kind of value neutral and i find like meaning elsewhere like i because i feel like there's a stereotype you know there's a lot of professors who are like zealots right like we actually think what we do in the classroom is like this noble calling and then there's people who are like no i mean it's just what i do and then you know but i find my meaning elsewhere what? does that make sense is that yeah, yeah. I mean, my take on it is a
1: both and they're able, they're able to participate in both registers and many of them vacillate. And -hmm. it depends on the context and who they're talking to and where they're at in their career. And Mm -hmm. they're absolutely able to participate and understand both registers. And they probably place themselves like most people, one side or the other, depending on how things are going.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you guys read that great book, Confessions of a Stock Jobber? That book from the 1920s. Oh no. It's, it's like I it's some famous guy who played the stocks, but he, you know, he started in bucket shops and moved his yeah. way up. But there's just these super poignant moments where he tries to go on vacation to Atlantic City, I think he goes, and he just can't. He like sneaks away yeah. from his wife and the party because he hate to just go to I think literally to a bucket shop to place a bet, you know, because he's <laughs> right. he's convinced yeah. that he's got a kind of new way of thinking here at the beach, and right. it's just very right. moving and sad at the same time, you know.
0: Well, it's like a, the, the addictiveness of it, you know. Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, there's an element too that the socialization to make it in this universe really closes off your ability to have other things that can generate meaning in your life. So you right. know, if you spend from graduation, you know, if you spend from like the time you're 21 to the time you're 35 on this very rigid track, yeah. you're working 60, 70 hours a week. All the relationships that don't have to do with finance, they wither and die yeah. Your reference group becomes the people that you work with and your measures of success becomes yeah. that of your reference group. And so it would take someone really exceptional yeah. to have something outside of that that could ground them. I mean, kind of in the same way that you were describing, you know, maniacal academics.
0: Right. And also, I mean, your sleep cycle is completely
1: yeah, food, your nutritional you know the, the way you access the city the way yeah. you, you access leisure the way you go to restaurants the way you interact with you know potential you know marriage or romantic partners all of it gets you know
0: yeah, I, uh, pushed down I that mean, funnel yeah i mean i i think those scenes in barbarians of the kid of the empty chinese food containers yeah. and the pencils that are in the ceiling because they're like throwing themselves <laughs> up
2: the ceiling. I love that part. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so well, isn't so, that yeah. the point of American Psycho? Like, isn't that the logic of American Psycho? Like, if you get that, you know, I mean, it's not okay, fine. He's a psycho. Yes. But I mean, it's more just like, <laughs> he just sees the world through this one particular prismatic set of lenses, which he's been yeah. Cult, yeah. acculturated to and then yeah
0: i mean the book yeah. is not called psycho it's called american Psycho, right? Yeah. <laughs> <For> reason, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i mean I, I was sitting down with a guy at one point when i was doing the private equity work and you know i one of the things that private equity does is they come in they buy the company and then they structure compensation packages for executives such that they force the executives to do what the private equity guys want right and usually this is maximizing short-term profits so you can pay down all the debt that got put on the company in the transaction. And I said, how are you incentivizing managers to do this? Like, what are the professional incentives that you give them? And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, how do you make them do this? And he's like, well, we pay them more. Right. And I said, do you do anything else? And he said, well, what else could you do for someone? Like, so yeah. there's, there's nothing you could do for another human being aside from give them money
0: right which is why this is like an engine of inequality right because then there's yeah. the golden parachutes, and then the yeah. just the debt you know financing has to come from the people who are lower down on the
2: yeah yeah it's a pyramid hierarchy, right mm. yeah yeah so so elizabeth you wanted to make a connection to the to our brahmin left conversations do you want to say more yeah. about how you how you were thinking that a that connection
0: you know, a series that we did on the Brahmin Left, um, which came out of a conversation um, that John and Adinir had with Thomas Piketty, was about the sort of you know yeah. predicaments of inequality and their uh, political fallout, particularly within the party system, right? Um, and you know, there are various yeah. iterations, and we had kind of were we scrapped, were scrappy about them, um, but you know, central to that is this kind of pivotal moment of the, you know, of the financial crisis and this moment that I think we all remember at, or at least I remember as like, oh, this moment of potential opening and like solidarity. And, you know, we are the 99% is this little Gramscian and, you know, space opening up. I think that our undergraduates barely remember Occupy at all. Um, so, you know, I'm just curious. Yeah. What you think, Dan? As having looked at this stuff closely, like what happened with Occupy, as you know, something where these things really were on the table for conversation.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I kind of, I kind of take David Graeber's perspective on this one, where he thinks about revolutions as changes in ideas of common sense, um, and I think. You know, I think it's fair to say, okay, yeah, we're still living with financialized capitalism. Um, But I I think at least for those of us who were around to remember it, I think it changed a lot of our common sense about uh, the structure of society and it, it put inequality on the political agenda in a way that hasn't gone away. And the fact that we haven't had effective political mobilizations to create like a socialist utopia in America, sure, that's disappointing. But, you know, it's the, the American political system is designed to prevent that type of right. majoritarian action. So it's, you know, it's upsetting, but I, I, th- I really do think that there's been a change in attitude around um, how people think about debt, how people moralize debt. And um, I don't think anyone thinks that finance people are good no. guys. Uh, you know, I, I don't think-
0: uh, <laughs> That's a whole stance, yeah, I like that.
1: Yeah. So, I, you know, has it translated into the type of political action that I would like? Obviously not, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I think that. I mean, for me, certainly it was a it was a change in consciousness, and I think it was for a lot of people that were around
2: during it. Well, can I ask the question a different way? I, can I connect it back to Elizabeth? Your I thought really interesting point. You when you were splitting apart the different waves and the oscillation, you 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 picked up Dan your point about corporatism and like. Waves of corporatism. Mm-hmm. So maybe the question has to do with like um, capacity of institutions or trust in institutions to solve problems, mm. like moments when big government comes roaring back versus yeah. moments when neither the right or the left particularly wants big government. And clearly, Occupy, the particularities of Occupy were like not wanting big government, right? I mean, it wasn't, yeah. it was yeah. seen as a dissident movement. But then, you was, know, one. Yeah like in the 30s, you got that kind of dissonant, 1930s, that is, you get the night, you get that dissonance. And then you get a, a big government response to it, like we can solve this problem yeah. at a corporate level. And that's a, you know, a positive, yeah. like Piketty ta- looks at that moment. Yeah. And he says, like, this is the moment in the in the 20s and 30s, when suddenly yeah. people start having faith in institutions, to be able to, to get us out of this rather than, you know, just particularized, financialized state. We have a state with, you know, common stakeholders or something. So are we there in the twenties? Like I don't see the turn back towards that faith. I mean, clearly it's not there on the right. I mean, obviously, Yeah. I guess perversely, you could argue that ethno-nationalism is a form of faith and corporate. Well, and I
0: think that, you know, the call for regulation and stuff is a call for governmental,
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's like a big exactly. deal. I think it's a big deal that like uh, Biden has nominated who he has to lead the Federal yeah. Trade Commission. I mean, right. um, Lena Kahn has and a very- The infrastructure
0: varied... bill is about trying to yeah. have these governmental solutions. Um, so yeah, and I think that, that Dan, that is a sign, sign potentially that, the, you know, these things are more yeah. on the table. The common sense has shifted.
1: I just think capital, like- writ large and politically mobilized has a huge interest in the only entity that is capable of regulating it and redistributing it being in disarray and like that's how you can read republic that's one way to read republican politics and that's often how i choose to read it it's you know the intentional disruption and dismantling of the state because if it is captured by interests that are hostile to capital it will regulate capital, it will break up monopolies and it will redistribute wealth. And it will do so fairly quickly because most people want that.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much, Dan. It was a great conversation and uh, we will have more commentary and, um, and other things around all of these questions, both the methods questions and sort of finance, <laughs> what happened to Occupy and so on. So
1: Yeah, it so was well, is super fun. Thank you both for having me on. Uh, yeah, I really enjoy the work you're doing and uh, it's, it's a nice conversation. Excellent. Thank you.
0: So recall this book is the brainchild of John Plotts and Elizabeth Ferry. It's affiliated with public books and is recorded with the help of the Media Lab of Brandeis Library. Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy called Fly Away. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen and production assistant including website design and social media is done by Miranda Peary. We appreciate the support of the Mandel Center for the Humanities at Brandeis, University Librarian Matthew Sheehy, and Dean Dorothy Hodgson. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, and suggestions for future episodes, and you can email us directly or contact us via social media and our website. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You may be interested in checking out past episodes, especially Christine DeSands on Making Money, Peter Brown on Wealth and Charity in Early Christianity, another monastery connection, and our series on the so-called Brahmin Left. And please stay tuned in our next season for episodes produced in partnership with the podcast Novel Dialogue and more. So thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.